Greetings. We offer these podcasts freely, and your support really makes a difference. To make a donation, please visit tarbrock.com. Namaste. Welcome. Last week I was on a retreat, a week-long silent retreat, so I didn't prepare a talk. Instead, I selected a talk that I'd given at a retreat uh, some years ago, and it looks at the healing and the realization that's possible, um, really truly freeing our hearts as we deepen our practice. As the saying goes, Enlightenment is an accident, and practice makes us accident-prone. So, as this talk was given at a retreat, there's no video, and many might find this invites you to go deeper into your own experience. Okay, friends, may this serve your growing peace, open-heartedness, and freedom. Blessings. Namaste. In our Dharma talks these last evenings, we end in uh, a lot of the instructions and interviews. A lot of the focus has been how to uh, work with suffering. And we've been appropriately paying attention to the very realness of uh, what's difficult and fear grief, shame, anger. So it's interesting to begin to look more closely at the moments where there's well-being and to sense, okay, since you've been here, the moments perhaps when you were outside and stopped and there was a sense of sky or a smell of grass or look, a color, a glint of the turning autumn leaves. There are countless such moments I could recount, a moment of stillness in here. Our moments of well-being at home when we're gardening or playing with our dogs or playing with a child, whatever it is. What's the common denominator of what makes those moments what happens when there's contentment? What's going on? when there's a sense of peace or our love. What, what is the common denominator whenever that's there? Whenever we actually touch some real happiness? Just, yeah. A sense of connection. Yeah. We're in the present, peace of mind, no worries. There's no wrong answer, by the way, so... Yeah, yeah. Present. Not wanting anything else. Gratitude. Gratitude's there. Somebody say something? Beauty. Awareness. So these are all, I think of them, they're all part of the, all weaves in the same experience that we're really here for the moment, right? 
you have to be really here for the moment. There's, there's presence. And I'd like to name something else which is embedded, which is there's not a fixation on self. Have you noticed that? That in any of those moments, there's not a preoccupation with self. It's not like you're thinking, I'm a great self, I'm a bad self. There's just not so much. You know, it's like the fuller the presence, the less there's any what we call selfing, reference here to me, 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 me. Okay, there's kind of an openness. Now, when we examine moments that were fearful, that were angry, it's filled, it's solid with self, right? I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole deal. It's very centralized as a victimized self, an isolated or alone self, a flawed self, but it's very much about self. Many of you might remember Wei Wu Wai's comment. He says, why are you unhappy? He says, 99% of everything you do is for yourself. And there isn't one. (laughs) So I was thinking of that and I was reminded, because we've all been visiting the goats, uh, that some months ago there's a story of some Montana high school students. They played this prank at school. And they released three goats into the school. (laughs) And they painted on the side of the goat number one, number two, and number four. (laughs) The whole day, all the administrators and teachers were looking for goat number three. (laughs) So this is what happens when we fixate on something that doesn't exist, right? (laughs) The problem is that when we're fixated on self, we miss out. You know, we miss out. And one of my favorite descriptions of this is Pema Chodron. She says, being preoccupied with our self-image is like being deaf and blind. It's like standing in the middle of a vast field of wildflowers with a black hood over our head. It's like coming upon a tree of singing birds while wearing earplugs. And we can kind of sense it when we're, when we're centralized on self. We're just, we're missing out. Now, this is not to say we don't need to pay attention to what we call the consensual sense of self, that, you know, we're operating in a world and we are, are navigating, and I sometimes describe the spacesuit. We have to notice what we need and take care of ourselves and others, and there's kind of one level of reality that we know that we're attending to. But the question is really, is that possessing us? Is that our exclusive identification? And this is going to be the theme that we get so narrowly fixated and we identify ourselves with a certain set of roles and a certain persona and certain kind of currents of emotion and the story of my life. We, we move through life thinking like a self is having a life happen to it. It's moving through this, this trajectory on its way somewhere. And the Buddhist teachings, and I think this is kind of one of the elegant, kind of the core teachings, is we suffer because we don't know who we are. We have a misunderstanding, a misperception that we adhere to. And the perception is that we're this small self. It's, it's something, 
We suffer because we experience our being as less than what we are. That all suffering is a flag. Whenever you're suffering, it's a flag that in some way your identity has contracted to something less than what you are. So, in an evolutionary perspective, it's entirely natural that we identify as a separate self. Like, all existence exists and awareness perceives itself as a set of waves, the self. And then we have these stages of development. And we need to feel that self and feel then differentiated from parent and feel the self that, that's taking care of itself and getting things for itself and protecting itself. Bus of kindergartners are on a school trip and this little girl brings the driver a handful of peanuts. And he's surprised, but he says thanks and he eats them. Ten minutes later she brings another handful. Again, well, you know. But the third time he says, honey, you and your friends can share and enjoy them. You know, you don't keep giving them away to me. And she says, oh no, we're just sucking the chocolate off of them. So here, here's the understanding that I think is interesting, is that developmentally we're supposed to feel separate and we're supposed to take care of the separate self, but there is a developmental arrest if we don't keep going. That it's not the end of the evolutionary story that we're uh, self-centered or that we're organized around this self-sense. And when we have signs of arrest, Well, it's when we really get discontented. And you would not be here if you had not felt the, um, the pain of not, uh, not at home, something's off. And I think of that as kind of a developmental rest. It's like something in you knows you're meant to discover or live in something larger. And, uh, and yet there's this sense of still playing out old patterns. So that not at home is kind of a signal of the arrest. So what I want to explore tonight, which we're already exploring, is this capacity we have that we've been really um, kind of honing in on all week to realize what we are beyond this narrow identification with a small self. And to realize that and there's a Zen saying I just want to bring in, which is that when this realization is deep, when we have a deep realization of what we are beyond the story, our whole being is dancing. That there's a freedom, and freedom can be a word that's kind of vague, that the more we realize uh, our beingness beyond the stories and the roles, the more freedom there is for this spontaneous, alive expression of what we are. So um, Adyashanti coined the term emptiness dancing, which I like. So this inquiry of really who am I, because we know ourselves through these stories, it's I feel humble putting words on it. Every time I give a talk about the nature of awareness or emptiness or any of these, this domain, which we often don't talk about, we just say, well, let's practice presence and it will reveal itself because putting words on it 
can automatically almost reify something that is absolutely beyond words. A friend who's a Unitarian minister told me about this interfaith um, gathering she participated in. And at it, it was open with the inquiry of, we need this agreed language, so what's it going to be for referring to the divine? You know, so shall we call it God? And right away a Wiccan, a female Wiccan said, no way, no way. What about goddess, she says. And of course, ha, remarks a Baptist minister, what about spirit? Nope, declared an atheist, so they go at it. Discussion goes on, and finally a Native American suggested the term the great mystery. The great mystery. And they all agreed, because they knew that whatever his or her personal understanding was, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. So the mystery, we talk about the word love, but what is love really if we start just deepening our attention? Or, you know, where did this universe come from? What was there before the Big Bang? You know, the Big Bang, so the universe starts pouring out matter through space, right? And this matter forms stars, and the residue forms these planets. And so everything on Earth, these living bodies, you know, is formed out of the same material that formed the stars. And so your bones are made of calcium and magnesium and there's seawater in your blood. And so you're the living earth in this particular form, right? This is what uh, Brian Swim, cosmologist Brian Swim says. He says, four and a half billion years ago, the earth was a flaming molten ball of rock and now it can sing opera. So it's a mystery, and at the core of the mystery is this sense of of cognizance, that there's cognizance here. This living earth that we are, this clay body, is cognizant. I mean, let me ask you right now, just for five seconds, don't be aware. Anyone succeed? Ah. (laughs) I I bow to the elders. (laughs) That's a great feat. (laughs) So what happens is we say, don't be aware, and there's something that just keeps happening. And yet, what happens when we try to attend to awareness, to look at it, or discover it, or locate it? Okay, so awareness is going on, but what happens when you really try to pay attention to it? Nowhere to land, really. The challenge is that it's just the way we we can't see our own eyes, right? You can't see awareness. What you're looking for is what's looking. So it's it can't be an object that our mind grasps. We can only be awareness. So the great invitation in spiritual life is to be that which we are, that this awareness is here, just be it. And yet what happens instead is that we fixate on objects and identify with objects. So back to this evolutionary development process. 
awareness takes form, you know, there's all these waves that take form, and then it identifies itself with a particular set of waves, and it forgets its oceanness. That just is just one metaphor, okay? So the ocean is, you know, emerges as waves, but then it thinks, oh, I'm these waves, and it forgets the oceanness, and that's a temporary stage in evolution. There's a forgetting. And then as evolution continues, the waves become aware of their wateriness, become aware of, oh, being part of the ocean. We discover our belonging. But in between, there's some stages of that forgetting that get very solidified. We get very rigid in these patterns we get identified with. Sometimes there's this notion that we are human beings on a spiritual path, right? But really, we are spirit experiencing a human incarnation. We're, We're coming to realize ourselves through these bodies. These bodies are kind of like instruments, sensory perceptive instruments, but we're spirit coming to realize ourselves through them. But there's a forgetting period, and in that forgetting period awareness is identified with stories, with sensations, feelings, emotions. And what locks it in is these repeating thoughts that keep the stories going about who we are. So each one of us, we organize, the identification organizes in a core way, as Pat described last night, as soon as there's a sense of separateness, with that is fear, needing to get needs met. So we organize around getting our needs met, the wanting and fear around needs. Check inside and you'll find the most kind of tight, solid, familiar sense of who I am is a self that wants or fears around needs. That's the most familiar deep sense of who we are. Will I get this? Won't I get this? Something bad's going to happen. So that's the core level of the identification. And then we, then we tell all these stories about who we are and what the world's like and what has to happen in order to be okay. Now, as long as we're telling those stories and believing those stories, we're going to have that identification glued real tight. Does that make sense? That the stories keep that self-sense really solid? Gandhi described it this way, that our beliefs create our thoughts and our thoughts create our feelings, our feelings create our actions, our actions create our character, and our character creates our destiny. Now, I think that's really powerful, that as long as we're looping in these, these thoughts and feelings and we're believing them, then we act out of them, it creates our whole sense of self, and it creates our destiny. So, the beauty of a spiritual practice, a practice of remembering, is that we begin to n- recognize, oh, These are thoughts, they're just thoughts, and the word just is key. They're not truth, they're a map, they're not reality. It's one of the deepest realizations I think people come away from in retreats is that I don't have to believe my thoughts. It sounds so simple, but it's like absolutely liberating. They're just thoughts. 
But they're a map that's fueled by fear and wanting, and we'd rather have a map than no map. That's the problem. We want ground to stand on. So even though they're fear-driven maps that are telling us something's wrong with me, this is how other people experience me, something's wrong with you, we'd rather have that than not have ground. So we hold tight to our descriptions and our, our, our stories, and they become quite a solid veil between us and reality. We hold tight. Okay, so here's a a kind of inquiry. It's a time to elect a new world leader and only your vote counts. Here are the facts about three leading candidates. Candidate A associates with crooked politicians and consults with astrologists. He's had two mistresses. He also chain smokes and drinks eight to ten martinis a day. That's a lot of martinis. (laughs) Okay, that's candidate A. Candidate B, he was kicked out of office twice, sleeps until noon, used opium in college, and drinks a quart of whiskey every evening. Candidate C, he's a decorated war hero, he's a vegetarian, doesn't smoke, drinks an occasional beer, and never cheated on his wife. Which of these candidates would be your choice? Okay. So... Should I have you vote? (laughs) I hadn't thought of that. Anyway, candidate A is Franklin D. Roosevelt. Candidate B is Winston Churchill. Candidate C, Hitler. Yeah. Yeah. I like that just because, you know, if you know it already, then you kind of go, yeah, that makes sense. But we do go around with our stereotypes and our ideas and we can even come to a retreat like this and we'll move through this retreat and we've been doing metta and we're getting more and more present and we still have these projections on who this person is from the way they look if we don't know them and we sort instantaneously from our past memories and history and our cultural imprints instantaneously to notice age or what's, who's attractive or not attractive, our color or the way the person moves and is it socioeconomically, does this look like my kind? And we don't even notice it. We're just, we have these flash imprints that in us that, that then project. And if we aren't able to start noticing our thoughts and noticing our stories and our beliefs, we live in a world of unreal others. The other is not real. We don't get to pick up what's really there because we've got this whole veil and we're living in a world of unreal self. We have these stories we're believing about ourselves. And I'll sometimes ask people, and this is not just me, it's a very, it's a question that's a really useful one a lot of people use with, who would you be if you didn't believe that? If you didn't believe that you were flawed, or if you didn't believe that you didn't belong, or if you didn't believe that you were unlovable, like, who would you be? And because we don't know, we'd rather know and have it be bad news sometimes than let go. Now, it's not just the bad news stories. We just live in, the, in our ideas a lot. So we're moving through life, living in, in a story of how things are. And it's not always real. So, brief story. 
As a bagpiper, I play many gigs. Recently, I was asked by a funeral director to play at a graveside service for a homeless man. He had no family or friends, so the service was to be at the Pauper Cemetery in a Kentucky back country. As I was not familiar with the backwoods, I got lost, and being a typical man, I didn't stop for directions. I finally arrived an hour late and saw the funeral guy had evidently gone, and the hearse was nowhere in sight. There were only diggers and crew left, and they were eating lunch. I felt badly and apologized to the men for being late. I went to the side of the grave and looked down, and the vault lid was already in place. I didn't know what else to do, so I started to play. The workers put down their lunches and began to gather around. I played out my heart and soul for this man with no family and friends. I played like I've never played before for this homeless man, and I played Amazing Grace. The workers began to weep. They wept, and I wept, and we all wept together. When I was finished, I packed up my bagpipes and started for my car. Though my head hung low, my my heart was full. As I opened the door to my car, I heard one of the workers say, I've never seen nothing like that before, and I've been putting in septic tanks for 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes we construe reality one way and sometimes another. He ends his story saying, apparently I'm still lost, it's a man thing. So... Whatever the story, whether it's a a story about good things happening or bad things happening in the future, we're still living inside a story. And so mystics through the ages have explored the practices that quiet the stories enough so we can see through the veil. So there's a gap between some thoughts so we can see what's true. There's a a little quip that Descartes goes into a bar, he's drinking a beer, he finishes, and the bartender says, want another? I think not, he says, and he disappears. So it's a silly little quip, but, you know, what we find here is when we quiet the thoughts, there is a dissolving of that solidity of a self-sense, right? Have you noticed that some, as it gets quieter? There's just stuff happening, right? So there's a question I love, and I ask myself it a lot as I'm moving through the day, and it's, who am I taking myself to be? Just at any given moment, like right this moment, who am I taking myself to be? And to the extent that there's an idea about myself, some background story about who I am and who you are, it actually runs interference with real spontaneity, with real love. When I'm taking myself to be a something, the love is, it's there, but it's um, in some way uh, diluted some. It's not as, it's not in a full flow. We can't be as creative. So as I said, the blessings of a, of a path is that as we deepen our attention, we begin to, to wake up out of the self-story. And, and I read you Sridhar Sargadatta, uh, Indian non-dual teacher who I love. He says, as long as you imagine yourself to be something tangible and solid, a thing among things, 
You seem short-lived and vulnerable, and of course you will feel anxious to survive. But when you know yourself to be beyond space and time, you will be afraid no longer. The Buddha, when he sat under the Bodhi tree, you know, encountered all the challenges and in his wakefulness was able to discover that presence and compassion that's larger than the challenges that were thrown at him by the god Mara, you know, the the arrows and the spears. And they're really the challenges, the shadow side that we all experience. And so that's what we're practicing here, like the Buddha, just being under the Bodhi tree here. And his awakening was to that, that timeless presence that's not identified with something small. And that didn't mean he still didn't experience bodily um, sensations. And as Larry said, there was pain through his life. But his identity wasn't hitched to a small self. So he was resting in a freedom that knew a larger belonging to something that's timeless. And an interesting part of the story or myth, however you want to think of it, of the Buddha's awakening, is that after his enlightenment experience, after he was awakened, he hesitated about teaching. You know, he had a sense that, you know, the ignorance, the dust in people's eyes, its ignorance, was too much, and that they just wouldn't get it, because freedom was so profound. It was, he's, it's not like you can imagine it was so profound. He said, you know, it's, he just didn't trust that people would get it. So um, Brahma had to convince him, you know, because he was just going to go off and just bliss. And he had to convince him, come on back, you know, these folks, they can handle it. And then he looked again, and he saw with the eyes of compassion uh, the suffering, and he also saw with the eyes of wisdom that, yeah, we have dust in our eyes, and yet we're all Buddhas. I mean, what he realized is what we all are. It's in us all. The most basic reason I'm attracted to Buddhism is the single message that it's what we already are and it's homecoming. Just deepen our attention, we're coming home. And I think it's irreversible that you can't be here and you can go back into trance. We all wake, forget, awake, forget. But that awareness wants to realize itself. That's the nature of awareness, to awaken through these bodies and realize itself through us. And it's just happening. It's just happening. So, to me, that's the beauty, that's the message that's so powerful, that it's possible for every one of us. And so what we do here to realize this evolutionary potential, because this is the evolution of consciousness. What we do here is pay attention in what I consider two ways, and the rest of the time I talk, I'm going to talk about how these two ways work. And one of the ways, the primary thing we're doing here is what I call paying attention to the waves. We're noticing the waves of our experience, and we're getting better and better at Oh, okay, thinking, just as, again, this morning's instructions, the sound right now, a strong sensation. We're becoming mindful of the waves of experience. And there's several different ways that awakens us. 
You know, sometimes we're mindful in a very simple way of it, it's not like there's high drama, it's not like there's some intense charged experience, but as we start, as we just get very, very present with this moving flow of this sensation and that sound, more and more, rather than relating from experience, there's a sense of that mindfulness, that awareness that is, is aware of what's happening, and there's a dissolution of a sense of self. In the moment that you're aware of something, you're not hitched to it, or you're less hitched to it. And then, for many of us, because this is what happens at retreat, because we're no longer using our normal escapes, our normal ways of being preoccupied, what wanted attention, what was still tangled, presents itself. And this is awareness, this wanting to be free. It's like, as long as there's a tangle, awareness is going to keep presenting it so that it can be untangled to allow the full flow and realization. Suffering is a call for loving attention. It's awareness wanting to come home to itself. So that's a lot of what's happening here, is that we start encountering that which is really asking for attention. And sometimes it's a dramatic encounter and sometimes it's not. Um, I share with you, just because, again, I'll use the metaphor of waves, that the more you can be with the intense and difficult waves, the more fully you bring presence to it, the more you realize the oceanness. That's the basic, that's the basic metaphor. So, for me, one of the... I shared uh, a couple of days ago story, a challenging story of really turning on myself when I was sick. Some months after that happened, I landed up in the hospital for a week. And there might have been a few of you that ended up at the New Year's retreat that I was supposed to teach, but I was in the hospital for it instead. And I hit a point that I consider where where I was just really identified with the waves. And it was when they had absolutely no idea what was wrong with me except for that they thought maybe I needed a pacemaker and I couldn't leave the hospital because my pulse was, you know, like below 40 or something. It was really low and uh, I was incredibly weak. And the wave was one of profound fear because I was entirely uncertain if I had any life in front of me. Like it just, I really questioned whether there was anything ahead. And could I, would I ever be able to continue teaching? What could I count on? So there was that depth of um, really not knowing and the fear that comes with not knowing, which is really scary uh, when there's some bad possibilities. I was using the kind of the language that Chogyam Trungpa has offered where he says, just meet your edge and soften. So every time I'd hit a real edge of something, I would try to soften you know, try to entrust to the waves, you know, try to let go, try to really be there. But I remember one, one point when the fear was really great and the only way I could kind of move towards the edge is what I shared a few days ago where I would just use some term of, of self-love, like sweetheart. I'd say, it's okay, sweetheart. And there came one point where I did put both hands on my heart and said, sweetheart, just, just let go into this, it's okay that um, I just kind of, it was like dropping into this empty hole 
except for it wasn't empty. It was just, you know, it was just a death hole of fear and grief. Like I just, I thought I'd be gone. But I, I kind of uh, loved myself into letting go into it. It's the best way I can put it. And then I started finding the more excruciating, the more inside that excruciating pain was love. And the more intense it got, the more the presence that was with it was loving presence. So the fear would get more intense, but the presence with it became intensified presence. I'll step aside and say, I found that's the alchemy of transformation for all types of transformation. That when you're present with something that's really intense, you become the presence. And that intensity is just intensified presence, so that the wave's still there, but you have become larger. So that's what happened, and in the intensity of fear, it was loving presence. So that I, at some point, said, this loving presence is what I am, and it was more familiar and more home than any fear, any thought about the future, although the thoughts had quieted down. Now, I share this with you, and I, and I share similar stories about myself and others, because over and over I've discovered that whenever there's suffering, it's asking for loving attention. And it can't just be attention, it has to be loving in some way. It could start off that the word love just means there's some intention towards gentleness, in other words, it can't, it, it's not going to start as full-blown love, because if you're caught in fear, how do you say fear? Okay, I'm going to bring you love. You can't, because the biochemistry of fear that's filling you is not the feeling of love. Does that make sense? So sometimes we're told, oh, when you're feeling fear, just bring a lot of love to it. Well, it doesn't happen so quickly. It's more, there's fear and there's this intention that's coming from the place of love that's been blocked off to be loving. Does that resonate? And then, so for me, it was just that sweetheart, it's okay. I wasn't feeling tremendously loving towards myself, but just the gesture helped me connect with it. And then it dropped in and in. Suffering is a wave and it's asking for a loving attention. So this is the alchemy uh, of waking up. So those are some of the ways of being with the waves. Another way of being with the waves is where we just open to everything that is right now when there's nothing predominant that's really calling our attention. So to give you an example, you might, if you're writing, just put down everything and just, if you will, take a moment to close your eyes. And just collect with your breath. Let your attention come home with the breath. You might mentally whisper here, and just bring yourself right here. And begin to open your senses to all the experience that's here. So that as you're listening, you're not just listening to sound, but you're listening to the whole moment. that you're feeling the whole moment. This is awareness receiving the sensations that are here. 
receiving the scent or fragrance or whatever smell, just sensing the space around you and receiving that. Scents and sounds. Feeling so that you're listening to and feeling the whole moment. And there can be a sense a little of stretching, like you're being stretched. Listening to and feeling all that's happening. And sensing the openness that's happening in. How vast. Sensing that what you are is that openness, perceiving this moment-to-moment experience. When you open to the ways in their entirety, this whole living moment, you become that openness, that wakeful openness. So one whole way that we pay attention is we pay attention to the ways we begin to discover the ocean the wholeness, the openness. The other pathway, as you can imagine, is directly beginning to turn our attention to investigate the ocean itself, that ocean of beingness. Aldous Huxley describes uh, this reducing valve of awareness that we are, our original nature is mind at large, is that openness. But because we're animals trying to survive, he says, to make survival possible, This mind at large has to be funneled through a reducing valve of the brain and nervous system. He says, what comes out at the other end is a measly trickle of the kind of consciousness which will help us stay alive on the surface of this particular planet. Which, and I like that because it's, yes, we need to do it to survive and yes, it's possible to become mindful of that and reconnect or remember our original openness. So, This last piece is training in discovering that background of experience. Normally we're focused on the waves. How do we open our attention? It's kind of a foreground background to the space that everything's arising from. Sogyal Rinpoche says this, if everything changes, if everything changes, then what is really true? Is there something behind the appearances, something boundless and infinitely spacious in which the dance of change and impermanence takes place? Is there something, in fact, we can depend on that does survive what we call death? So 
So a brief reflection for you now. Imagine that you're looking through a photo album of your life. Okay? So there you are in kindergarten. Just notice whatever you notice. Just flash onto that. Then senior year of high school. When you started your first job, fell in love or had a very significant connection with someone as an adult. If you had a child, had your first child. So they're photos, they're celebrating your achievements, they're they're also marking times of insecurity and loss. Just imagine this photo album here. And then you look in the mirror. Who are you? Now consider how your body's changed from kindergarten on up. Your worldview has changed. Your sense of what's important in life your pleasures, your moods. Now just ask yourself, in in every time and place, through all these years, all these moments, what about me has been unchanging? What has always been there? What's always been there? Awareness. I'm sorry? Heart. heart. Awareness, heart. Spirit. These are, it gives me different language, yeah. Can you speak a little louder? Principles and values, is that true? Just, it's an inquiry because it might change. This is what never changes. But may, let's keep that there. Anything else? Any other words just to put in the room? Witness? Love. So this is language of heart and consciousness we're hearing here that's unchanging. It might be a very early primitive kind of love. It might be an awareness that's not self-aware awareness, but it's awareness and love. So I call this beingness in some way, and the inquiry is really... In, I mentioned that kind of path has, has three phases, and the first phase is realization in the sense that we get, oh, there's something more, there's something, something I want to inquire about, because there's something here that's larger than this story, and then the second phase is getting familiar. We have more and more moments of mindfulness, of quietness, And in that stillness, there's something there. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's getting familiar. And then the last phase is the embodiment phase. So the inquiry is how do we get more and more familiar with this awareness, this love, this consciousness, this spirit? So it's really spirit in a human existence. And one of the understandings is that this beingness is closer than we imagine. 
we move through our daily life thinking we're trying to get to some spiritual experience when it's always, always, always closer than we can imagine. It's always here, always been here. It's an idea that we have to get somewhere. And it's an idea that it's outside us. So one of the reasons that we've been introducing this practice of inner space is because we think of spaciousness and openness as out there. And yet, when we begin to inquire and explore, we discover that there is, just like the atom, inside the atom is just space. It's like 99% of the universe, or 99.99, is, is empty space. I saw an IMAX uh, film with my son, and some of you might have seen it, it's called The Cosmic Voyage, where you first you go out, 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 out through the solar system and the Milky Way and to the outer edges of the observable universe, like huge space. And then through a drop of water you go in, 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 until you get to the tiniest known particles and the space inside everything. It's amazing to think that 99.99% of this universe is empty space. And that the space within us is as massive and vast as the space outside us. And that when we begin to explore and sense this awake space that's the source of everything inside this body, when you sense it inside this body, it's like you become this, like, you're the black hole and the universe is coming out of you. It starts to decondition the sense that what we're searching for is out there. It's right here. It's between every cell. This is uh, the poet Dana Fald says, go in and in. Be the space between two cells, the vast resounding silence in which spirit dwells. Go in and in. Be the space between two cells, the vast resounding silence in which spirit dwells. Go in and in and turn away from nothing that you find. Go in and in, become the space from which this universe springs forth. We touch and realize this this beingness, this awake space, this awake tender space, uh, through our lives in many moments. We all have those experiences, and we cherish them. They're the ones when we're, you know, looking at the night sky and sensing its immensity and uh, feel, and it's and it reminds us of the immensity of really the truth of what we are. Or it's during the silence in the early morning after sunrise, or before sunrise, just really quiet. Or the deep snow and the world still, that stillness. We love stillness. So why do we love this silence and the stillness 
and the sense of space. It's because it's what we are. It's the most deep, subjective experience of our beingness. So the practices that help us to touch in are practices where there's just a slight effort where we're saying, okay, so what's here? So that you're listening and you say, who's listening? Or what's aware? So we make an effort just in a slight way because it can't be striving, just to turn the attention a little and then let go. And you can explore it right now just for these moments, just close your eyes and, and just know that if it doesn't feel useful, it feels confusing, another time you can put it aside. But just to get a sense of this exploring, this beingness, you might start by just listening to sound again. Receptive. Listening not just with your ears, but your your whole awareness. And then just to ask yourself as you're listening, who or what is listening? Just to turn the attention towards awareness and then let go, just be whatever you notice. You can be the silence that's listening. You might feel these waves of sensation, the vibrating, the tingling. What's aware of this? Just turn the attention, just glance back. There's nowhere to land, there's nothing to see. Just let go and just be. can be the stillness that perceives sensation. Taking a few breaths, opening your eyes. And this is the last uh, couple of minutes to say that It's a beautiful and liberating part of practice to include what sometimes we sense as this background of experience. So we're not just looking at this, paying attention to the sound, but we're sensing that silence that's perceiving. Or if you're looking at the sky, you're not just looking at the silhouette of the branches, but you're sensing the sky itself. What happens when we begin to come into this wholeness where we're the ocean and the waves is that our being dances more freely. When you're not just the sensations in your body, but you sense the wakeful space, there's a flow that starts happening in your body. And it's very healing in a very real physical way too. Some of the blessings 
of emptiness dancing. One is happiness that's a happy for no reason. And you can sense it. I'm just going to give you an example of how you can start moving through the day and start sensing both this kind of empty space and this aliveness. You move through the day and when you're walking or eating or showering, just ask yourself, how is emptiness experiencing this right now? Or if you don't like the word emptiness, how is this awake space experiencing this? How is awareness experiencing this cup of tea, this step I'm taking, this breath? And what you find is that in the moments that you come into that wholeness where there's awareness experiencing, that presence itself brings happiness and wonder. There's not a conceptual overlay, there's just this, the Tibetans call it this, you become a child of wonder is you just start moving through and you're just awareness experiencing in this fresh way and there's an innocence to it. The world takes on a very fresh expression. Nietzsche writes, For happiness, how little suffices for happiness, the least thing precisely, the gentlest thing, the lightest thing, a lizard's rustling, a breath, a whisk, an eye glance. Little maketh up the best happiness be still. So happy for no reason. It's, you can check the next time you're feeling a sense of wonder or happiness, check. And what I think you'll find is that there's more space in the background in those moments. There's more of a sense of inner space, of silence, that makes it possible to experience what you're experiencing. Presence and happiness go together. Same thing for love. You can ask the same question that I just gave you and say, how does this openness, this awareness, this emptiness experience this other person right now? How does this wakeful openness experience the goodness of this person or the beauty of this landscape or the sorrow of this other person? Find out how wakeful openness or awareness experiences another suffering. And what we find is a natural response of compassion, of love. Same thing with peace. How does this emptiness experience change? How does this wakeful open awareness experience change? there's room. We have a heart that's ready for anything. And finally, how does awareness experience aliveness? I mean, if you're sitting here, how is a wakeful awareness right this moment experiencing the aliveness of this body? Emptiness dancing. There's a creative flow that happens. And when we're moving through life and empty awareness is experiencing activity, it becomes very creative and spontaneous. So I know I'm going a little bit long. I'm going to share one last story and then close. This is Ishtak Perlman, who was crippled by polio when he was a young child. And at each performance he makes, he enters with his crutches, 
some slow entry, sits down, unclasps his braces, you know, and so on. Then he prepares to play. 1995 performance, Lincoln Center, New York. And on this occasion, uh, he'd only played the first few bars of his violin when a string broke. So the whole audience could hear the crack. And what happened next, and they wondered, is he going to put on his braces and go and get another string for his violin or get another violin? But he sat still, he closed his eyes and paused, and then he signaled for the conductor to begin again. He re-entered the concerto and he played with unimaginable passion and purity and power. And those watching him could sense him modulating and changing and reconfiguring the piece in his head as he played. so deep with his immersion in creating that when he finished there was this odd silence and then of course came the outburst of applause as people rose and cheered from from every corner of the hall. Perlman smiled, he wiped the sweat from his brow and raised his bow to quiet the crowd. Then he spoke, not boastfully but in a quiet and pensive and reverent tone. You know, he said, sometimes It's the artist's task to find out how much music you can still make with what you have left. Each one of us is spirit living through these bodies and who knows how long this particular constellation or pattern of energy and thought and mind we call self has. But the more that we can remember this timeless belonging, uh, this um, awakeness and openness and tenderness, which is really what we are, the more these body-minds can be free to express and give ourselves fully whatever's left, whatever's here, with love and with joy, with joy. So we'll close just a few moments of uh, reflecting again, if you will, just to close your eyes. as we've been doing, just take some moments to open the sense doors, just listening. And sensing that silence that's listening. Listening to and feeling the aliveness that's here. Can you imagine the stillness that's perceiving this living world? Can you imagine the vast space that this moment is happening in?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.